first of all, let me say that it is a great privilege for me to be here tonight. And I'm so encouraged by everyone that's come out to hear the Word of God and to praise God. And it's just, you know, sometimes that through the week it can get a little bit of rough. And uh, it is so good when you come into this gathering and, uh, and see many of your faces and also see that you truly desire to know the Word of God. Now we're going to be looking at a text tonight that has a lot to do with the practical. With the practical. But I have discovered that it is in these small things, the practical things, that our life in Christ and for Christ truly shines through. Now, I want us to go to, of course, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 9 through 12. We'll read there. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your people. I thank you for the great work that you've done in them. Each one who has come here tonight, Lord. I pray that you would help me to understand the text, give me clarity of mind and of speech, Lord, not only for your glory, but for the benefit of your people that have come here tonight. Lord, bless them. Bless them. And Lord, since the weakest instrument stands here tonight, great grace required. Lord, please help me to communicate your truth to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we're going to go kind of slow. I'm going to be looking quite a bit at my notes because I want us to see several different nuances that are so important for you in these words of the Apostle Paul. First of all, in verse 9, you look at the phrase, love for the brethren, Philadelphia, from phileo, which means to love, and the delpos, which means brother, to love the brethren. Now look at verse 11. You have the word ambition, and it comes from the Greek word also, philotimeoma. See the, something in common there between the two? Phileo, which means to love, and time, which means honor. It literally means, ambition here, is the love of honor, the pursuit of praise, glory, and honor. Now, oftentimes, as Christians, we think in the, when we think of those terms, we think of something negative, don't we? But we're going to see that it's actually something positive. Hebert describes it this way, literally, to be fond of honor, to be actuated are motivated by a love of honor. Now, to be fond of honor, but also I want you to think, to be actuated by your 
desire for honor. Now again, that seems contradictory, doesn't it, in the Christian life? But I assure you, it's not. This is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to be ambitious. When you are being ambitious with regard to the will of God, for the glory of God, and lastly, and listen, when you are seeking honor, glory, and praise from God. I know that sounds unusual, so I want to give you some some verses that may help you understand this concept. In 1 Samuel 2.30, God says, Those who honor me, what? I will honor. Here we have the idea of God not receiving honor only, but honoring those who give him honor. Now let's look again in John 5.44. We learn that we are to seek the glory that is from the one and only God. That's what Jesus teaches us. That you and I are to seek glory from Him. In Romans 2, 7, Christians are described this way. As those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. Now, if you've read many, for example, Hinti novels or Lord of the Rings, or something that describes Camelot, you always hear of men, and even women, who desire what? They desire to go out and do great deeds, and to win for themselves, what? Honor, immortality, a name, a reputation. And for the most part, when we look at that, that's a bad thing. But in this context, it's not. When you desire to receive something of glory from God and honor before God. I think this is a concept that we are so missing today. I think it's also something that comes out in secular literature. But should come out more in our context of Christianity. How does a young man feel when he reads a story about about a soldier or a warrior who goes out and does great deeds and gains great honor for himself. Do you not see that also applies to Christianity? In which someone goes out and does great deeds for Christ's sake, for the sake of God and His kingdom, but at the same time knowing that it results in honor and praise name. Not before man. That's not the idea. But before God. I don't know about you. Maybe there's enough idealism in me. But that motivates me. I want my life to matter. I want to live for something. I don't want to just breathe. Ever since I was a little boy, I always thought to myself, I want to climb mountains. I want to fight battles. I want to do something Noble. I want to die for a cause. This is the idea here. We have that opportunity in the kingdom of heaven. Also, in Romans, um, in Romans two eight, unbelievers, the wicked, are described as those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unbelievers. 
righteousness. Again, we're not talking about an ambition for the things of the world or ambition to receive praise from men, but ambition to do the will of God and receive our praise from God. In 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul says this, Therefore we also have as our ambition, same word, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Let me share with you something. Passivity and apathy in Christianity, they have no place. They are the very opposite of zeal. They are the opposite of a biblical passion. We are not stimuli response plants that don't move unless somebody touches them. But we should be actively, ambitiously seeking to serve the Lord and to do great things in His name. Now, when we consider the word ambition, in the context of verses 9 through 12, we see something. That one of the greatest ways in which we manifest love toward our brothers and sisters in Christ is by being ambitious to carry out the will of God. You want to demonstrate love? It's not a thing of romance. It's not simply a thing of poetry. If you truly want to demonstrate love toward the body of Christ, then you should set your sights on doing the will of God. Because the more each believer in the church is in the very center of God's will, the more the church, your family, and all those around you are going to prosper. You should constantly be seeking, what is the will of God for my life? And then constantly striving to be in the very center of that will. Now, I want us to look at a few things that have to do with what is the will of God according to this passage. First of all, it's to lead a quiet life. One of the best ways you can demonstrate love toward the church and you can honor God is to lead a quiet life. Now what does that mean? We're going to define it in a moment, but right now let me just say this. A quiet life is the opposite of an unruly and undisciplined life. Also, attend to your own business, Paul is going to tell us. To attend to our own business. It doesn't mean that we don't get involved in the lives of others, but it does mean this. There is no place in the church or the kingdom of heaven for a meddler, for a busybody who is always running around taking care of everyone else's business and not cultivating their own garden. Another thing that we can do in our ambition that will be a blessing to the church and advance the kingdom is to labor according to the will of God. As we're going to see, there's no place no place for slothfulness in the kingdom of heaven. No place whatsoever. We are to labor according to the word of the will of God, working to supply our own needs. That's one reason why we work. Another reason, working so that we are not a financial burden to other people in the body. And finally, working so that we might supply the needs of others within the body. 
And it does not mean that we're not to receive from the body. All of us will go through times of prosperity and strength when we can be a great blessing to others. And all of us will probably go through times when we will need the help of the body. But what Paul is arguing against is that idea of slothfulness that basically says, let someone else take care of the church. and Let someone else take care of me. That has no place in the body of Christ. Now, this is such a serious matter. This idea of being ambitious, of being diligent, of being active, of working very hard. It's such a diligent matter. It's such an important matter that Paul says this. Listen, if anyone does not obey our instructions in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15. Do you see something here? We're not talking about immorality, are we? We're not talking about idolatry. We're not talking about someone who is breaking the law by stealing. We're talking about someone who is existing within the body of Christ almost in a parasitic way. They refuse to give due diligence in their responsibilities. They refuse to take care of themselves and their families. It is a great transgression against God when men do these types of things. Now, I want us to look at the ambition to lead a quiet life. If we look at the phrase, lead a quiet life, it comes from a singular word in the Greek New Testament that means this. To be still, to be silent, to quiet down, and to be rested. Now what is the idea? People frantically running all around, doing all sorts of things, without considering the will of God, and they cause great problems within the body. The idea is to settle down. To discern what the will of God is. And then to quietly, diligently do the will of God. In the church, outside of the church, as a corporate, as a body, and as individuals, I constantly see believers just, just spinning their wheels running around and doing all sorts of things, and sometimes activities that do not prosper the body of Christ, but actually hinder the body of Christ. And Paul is saying here, stop it. Settle down. It doesn't mean that we're not to have zeal. It doesn't mean that we're not to be active. But settle down and order all your activities according to the will of God. Now, this word is used in Luke 23, 56 to describe those who rested on the Sabbath day according to what the law prescribes. Hebert says this, it is used of silence after speech, rest after labor, and peace after war. It is also used here in the present tense. So Paul is saying that our lives should not just show sporadic times of rest and quiet but that our lives should be marked by what? A lack of zeal, a lack of passion, apathy? No, that's not what he means by quiet life. 
our lives should be marked by simplicity. You discerning and knowing the will of God for your life. And you laboring diligently in all the practical matters of life. Now, Hebrew says this, it is to be zealously active in endeavoring to live quiet lives. Now think about this. It seems contradictory, doesn't it? What does it mean to live a quiet life? To be zealously active in leading a quiet life. Now how do we do that? It has to do with the will of God. If you bypass the word of God, the will of God, then all of your activity and all of your zeal will amount to nothing. So many people are zealous to do something, zealous to do something, never thinking about, is this something that I'm doing? Is it the will of God? So instead of being zealous, first of all, for just doing, for just running wild, you know, people say, well, it's better to do something than nothing. That's not always the case. You're to be zealously active in pursuing God. What do you say about my duties and responsibilities in the scriptures? Be zealously active for discovering this in the word and then be zealous to do what the word commands. Do you realize there are so many simple commands in scriptures that people just ignore and it seems to me like the more super spiritual a person becomes, the more they ignore the clear and simple teaching of Scripture. Now, now I want to go on for just a moment. I want to define, step by step, what it means to lead a quiet life. Now, I want to look at it negatively, and I want to look at it positively. So here we go. Negatively. And I've worked on this definition for a long time. And I'm drawing these definitions not out of the air, but from 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15, where Paul has to deal with this matter again in the same church. Negatively, a quiet life is the very opposite of an unruly, undisciplined, slothful, and meddling life that causes conflict in the body of Christ is a burden to the body of Christ and gives a poor testimony to the unbelieving world. Now positively, a quiet life is a life marked by self-control, discipline, stability, unintrusiveness. I may have made that word up. What does it mean? It's the opposite of being a meddler or a busybody or someone who's always trying to get into the business of another person. Unintrusiveness and hard work, a life that promotes peace and stability in the body, contributes to the well-being of the body of Christ spiritually, practically, and financially, and adorns the gospel in the eyes of those outside of the body. Do you see how amazing it would be? How powerful it would be? What a testimony to the world it would be if everyone was leading a quiet life? So many times you see so much 
foolishness in the body of Christ, or at least with those who claim to be a part of Christ. Everything from marches on Washington to Jesus parades to this to that, activity, yelling and screaming, militancy, activism, everything you can imagine, when maybe the greatest way to be salt and light is simply to do what God commands. Each one simply following the commands of God. And I have seen this, and I've lived long enough in the Christian faith to see it over and over and over again. It is not the racehorse that wins. And it's not the brilliant who wins. And it's not the one that's gifted and has all the talents that wins. It is always the man, the woman, who is simply diligent in the small things. And isn't that what Jesus said? That if you're faithful in the small things, you will be put over other things. But most people despise the day of small things, jump over them, and God never entrusts them with greater things. Someone asked me one time, they said, what was the first ministry you ever received, hmm. officially? pastor called me in, had a special job for me, build a fence around the softball field that the church was using. I thought he was going to call me in to teach a Bible study. No, build a fence because I was raised on a farm and I was the only one who knew how to build a fence. But do that diligently. And I believe that that duty that was given to me Carrying out faithfully led to other things. But if you're not faithful in these small things, how can you be faithful in the big things? Now, here's something I want to teach you about what's possibly going on here in the church in Thessalonica. From the teaching that's going to come after this teaching regarding the day of the Lord and the second coming of Christ, it is very, very possible that these Thessalonians, they were allowing their hope with regard to the second coming of Jesus Christ to distract them from their daily duties, both spiritual and practical. Now, this isn't the first time something like this has happened. Actually, it happened in the nation of Israel when they were exiled into Babylon. Now, what do I mean? In Jeremiah, we have a, a very beautiful passage that actually pertains to the church today. What was going on is this. Israel, because of its disobedience, had been exiled to Babylon. And the same false prophets that before were proclaiming peace, 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 were now speaking again immediately when they got to Babylon. And what were they saying? They were saying, look, we're leaving here. God has declared we're leaving here. And we're leaving here soon. So put your life on hold. Do not prepare to live here in Babylon because God is going to rescue us. But that was directly the opposite of what God was saying through the true prophets. Let me read for you what he said in Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, and multiply there, and do not decrease. And then listen, 
Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you have welfare. Do you recall the passage that Pastor Anthony read? That we're to pray for kings and all those in authority. Why? That we might live a quiet life. Paul is taking that, I'm sure, from Jeremiah. Now, how does that apply to the church? The church of Jesus Christ, in some degree, we can say it's always been the church in the wilderness. We are a church far from our home. We are a church in exile. And we are awaiting the return of our king to be taken to our proper place. But while we are waiting, we should not be idle and looking up in the clouds. While we are waiting, we should be looking into the scriptures to find out what God has commanded of us and do that thing. And not just in our quiet times, not just in our prayer life, not just in those spiritual matters, but every matter of our life. You see, God is not a God of confusion. We see that in church, Paul's letters to the church in Corinth, but also we see it in the first three chapters, particularly the first chapter of Genesis. He brings order out of chaos. So many believers have chaotic lives in their finances, in their relationships, in everything, because they do not want to do the small things and order their life. There have been certain religious groups, and I say this positively, who, who make furniture. They're famous for it. And if you look at their furniture, it reflects what they say they believe about simplicity, elegance without luxury or extravagance. They build everything with simplicity and integrity and strength and a mild beauty. I won't criticize them for that. Although that type of thing should be carried out in all our lives. When someone looks at any aspect of our lives, they should see what we believe. They should see what we believe. If they looked at our finances, if they looked at our work, that work ethic, if they looked at what we watch, what we, what we do, what we wear, everything about us, our faith should come out. That doesn't mean that there's a particular Christian suit you can put on or that everyone has to do their finances in the same way, but it does mean that the way we are should line up with the fundamentals of our ethic, of our Christian faith. There should be a solidity to us because we are walking according to scriptures. And that we live in a way remember Jeremiah here. We live in a way to be a blessing to our city. I have a long drawn out yearning to go to heaven. But that is always pushing upon me an ethic that says be a blessing here on earth. And not just for the church, but be a blessing to society, be a blessing to culture. And how do I do that? By aligning my life. How do you do that? Aligning your life 
with the Word of God. That's why I so appreciate the Puritans. Even though I may not agree with everything, but I do appreciate they sought to take the Scripture and apply it to every aspect of their life. Now, I want us to look at two essential elements of a quiet life. First of all, in verse 11, he says, attend to your own business. Literally, be busy or occupied with your own things. They are to serve the Lord, they are to serve God, Hebert says, by a faithful performance of their own individual tasks. What are those? How do you find them? Well, you look in Scripture, but also you look at providence. Where has God put you? Where has He put you? What has He given you to do at this certain moment? You are to do it with all your heart. I hear so many men that will say, well, when I get into the ministry, I will be diligent. No, you won't. No, you won't. You won't. I mean, I'm called into the ministry. Therefore, you know, now I just can't bring myself to work hard. You will not work hard in the ministry. Look at providence and ask yourself, where am I? And in that place, be biblical and diligent and thorough and active and industrious, hardworking. And it honors God just as much as a man who spends 15 hours working on a sermon. It's true. Also, it's in present tense denoting a continual or habitual practice. We are to attend to our own business constantly. You know, sometimes I've heard what I would consider to be very godly and wise women say something. People ask them, well, why aren't you, you know, just really involved in the church, doing this, doing that? And the woman replies, I have a husband. I have young children to raise. I'm homeschooling. I have a home to keep in order for the glory of God. I don't have time to run around. Sometimes even in our own fellowship here, we have people who come from outside thinking we're just going to all get together and every day be together and sing Kumbaya. No, you're not. Why? There's dishes to wash. There's children to take care of and teach and all sorts of things. If you simply do the duties that have been put before you in God's providence, you will be wore out by the end of the day. When I was a pastor in Peru, there came a time where I had to call in several of the ladies in a group and I had to rebuke them lovingly, hopefully, kindly, but rebuke them. Why? Because they had gotten into a phase of being super spiritual. They were all about doing things in the church, doing things in the church, doing things in the church. And they were not taking care of their own homes. They weren't taking care of their husbands. They weren't taking care of their children. Nothing was in order. And I think for the most part, they were trying to escape from their homes. And that's why they were given to so much ministry. But you see, one of the 
ways, the Puritan said, that we most glorify God is by accepting God's providence and then doing it with all our heart. You see, you will not be honored on that last day for zeal, for zeal because you might be zealous about something you want to do that God never commanded. You're honored because you have submitted to His law and you have submitted to His ordinary providence. You've seen where he's put you and what he's put in your hands. And you do it with all your might. And if you're faithful, it opens up the door to so many other things. I've written this. It is amazing how much trouble we can avoid making in our own lives, in our families, and in the church by just minding our own business. Now, we all need teaching from others. We all need exhortation from others. We even need reproof from others. But no one is going to come into my home and start running. That is my responsibility. I can receive instruction. I must receive instruction from elders and deacons and good brothers in Christ and so on and so forth. But... You're not coming into my home and taking it over. And by God's grace, I will not be coming into yours and taking it over. I have enough field to cultivate now without worrying about where you are. Dear sisters, this is very important also, not just for men and their labor, but for you to be content with the stage in life in which you find yourself. It doesn't mean you will always be there. Maybe you're raising young children and you just want to do something else. Just be faithful. There come a time where those children will be grown and or they'll be more helpful. There come a time when there's more freedom, maybe more opportunity to come out and do ministry. But be faithful where you are now and do it with all your heart unto the Lord. I go this week to preach in a, a very, I guess, important and large conference. But do you think that is any more important than what you are doing? It's not. All I'm doing is the will of God. And if you go off to your work tomorrow, you're doing the same will for the same God, and there's just as much glory in it. You've got to see that. Nothing can destroy the love and unity of the church more than the following person I'm going to describe. An overly pious, super spiritual busybody who meddles in the affairs of others and are neglectful in their daily responsibilities of home and work and in cultivating their own spirituality. Now believe me, I'm not saying this because I've, I've seen this in the congregation. If I had, I would tell you, but I haven't seen this. I don't know all of you. I'm preaching it because it's in the text. But if it is hitting home, then it's only a sign, not that I'm a prophet, but that God loves you. And he's wanting to help you. Now, a second element in a quiet life is work with your hands. Now, the Greeks looked down on this. They despised work with the hands. But the Jews saw it as something honorable. 
Hebert says, among the Greeks, manual labor was regarded as degrading. It was an indispensable but contemptible necessity fittingly performed by slaves. The Jews, on the other hand, upheld the dignity of all forms of labor. Work was regarded as obligatory, and every Jewish boy, however wealthy his family, was taught a trade. The Jewish rabbis worked at a trade to earn their livelihood. The greatest missionary who ever walked the planet had a trade. No matter how rich a Jewish boy was in his family, he was taught trade. Now, where did the Jews come up with this idea? They came up with this idea from the scriptures. Now, Paul is not commanding here that all men work with their hands. He's not. What he is simply doing is bestowing the proper honor upon manual labor. Showing that it is something of dignity, something that should be done unto the glory of God, for the sake of Christ, and the benefit of society. If you're involved in a, what's called a secular job, first of all, realize that with a Christian that doesn't apply at all. Even the pots and pans in our house are sacred. For a Christian, there is no secular work. Everything we do, everything we touch is spiritual. But if you've looked at your job as a secular job that brings no honor to God, then what I want to do is I want to tear the lid off that grave, off that coffin. And I want it to be filled with light. That everything you do if it is according to the will of God and done zealously for the glory of God, it not only brings honor to God, but it brings benefit to the world and benefit to God's people. And so you need to see it that way. What Paul is simply trying to do here is to simply tell us that labor, hard work, is noble. And it is impossible to be a biblical Christian without working hard. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. It's the truth. Working hard. Being tired. Doing what we do for the glory of God. You know, I can remember as a little boy sitting around the stockyards who were cattlemen and farmers. Or even sitting around garages or whatever getting a tractor or a truck fixed. I can remember as a little boy sitting there and listening to older men like my dad and others boasting about, I now work you. I work harder than you. I work more in one day than you work in a month. I can outwork every man in here. Now, I see young men boasting about how they can get out of work, how they don't work, how they're so sly that they don't need to work. I want to point out something. Throughout much of the history of the church, there was this idea called the seven deadly sins, or the seven cardinal vices. And in that list was slothfulness. It's in the list with lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, envy, and pride. Slothfulness. As a matter of fact, some theologians have stated that it could be one of the greatest of all crimes against God. And Jesus gives us the parable of the talents, doesn't he? 
that you were given gifts. But most of those gifts are hindered by not only unbelief, but also by slothfulness. We're not to be slothful. Not in our sleep, not in our time, not in our bodies, not in our minds, not in our work, our labor, or anything. We are to be diligent and not slothful. Read the book of Proverbs. Some of the greatest maladies that break forth on churches and families and it's slothfulness. Just pure, unadulterated laziness. Now, for those of you who are students, yes, that accounting exam, how spiritual is that? Well, it is, if you're the one taking the exam, because you're doing it under the glory of God. Burning the midnight oil just to get this grade? Yes. Unto the glory of God. Because this is where he has placed you. And if you're not sure whether or not it's where he has placed you, still you're there. So while you're there, do it diligently. Diligently. We also must remember that labor is not a result of the fall. You realize that. In Genesis 2.15, then the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Labor's a good thing. It's not a result of the fall. Everyone, I can't wait to get to heaven. We think you're just going to lay down like a noodle when you get there. <laughs> we at least know that we will be administrating things according to our faithfulness here on this planet. You see? Do you realize that even some experts have come to the conclusion that this is the reason why many healthy men die just a year or two after their retirement? Because they have lost at least one aspect of what it means to be alive. They have lost one aspect of what it means to be human, to have meaning in their life. And that is why I want to encourage you, if you're near the age of retirement, don't you think, don't you think for a moment that when they hand you that gold watch, you're just to sit around and rest because that would be a great transgression against God. You are then to use your time to serve the Lord with all your heart. Now, I think it's interesting in chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says, just as we commanded you. The importance of this thing, and I keep bringing that up because you think, oh, he's just talking about labor, it's good, not many people came tonight, it's not a big deal. No, you don't understand. It's the, it's the hallway and the door that opens up to other opportunities in the Lord. It really is. And to Paul, it is very important. He's already said, if there's a slothful man among the church, then disassociate from you. And then also we can see that, that apparently from this letter we discern that before he wrote this letter, when he was with them, he admonished them with regard to these things. Now in this letter he's admonishing them. And then again in 2 Thessalonians, the second letter, he's going to admonish them again about the necessity of working hard. Now, we want to look at the twofold goal of our ambition, the twofold goal of being diligent in our labor, whether it be spiritual, practical, financial. The first goal of a godly ambition is to be.
be a positive witness to outsiders. Look at verse 12. So that you will behave properly toward outsiders. Look, for good or bad, you can't avoid it. If you have professed faith in Christ, people are going to be watching you. And they're going to be watching you, not with a discerning eye, but with a prejudiced eye. They're going to be looking at you to find fault. They are. And whether you like it or not, the way you live and work in the secular realm is going to determine what other people think about Christianity, the church, and the gospel. It's true. Now, I want to give you a few verses that are very, very important. Paul says here that we must behave properly or becomingly. He says that in our text. In Titus 2.10, Paul tells us that we are to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. That when someone looks at us and looks at the way we live, it actually beautifies sound doctrine. Also, in Colossians 4.5, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. It doesn't just mean open your mouth and speak. But open your life to them and prove that what you're speaking has some weight. That this gospel that you claim to have been touched by has the power to transform a person's life. The scholar Best says, It does not mean that the behavior of Christians will always please non-Christians. In the present context, it implies that the behavior of Christians will be such as to lead to no conflict with certain ideals which even non-Christians would accept. See, when a non-Christian sees someone lazy, they say lazy. When, someone, when a non-Christian sees someone working hard, they go hard worker. That's still there. It's still there. I remember one time a man who never became a member of our church, but he would visit us quite frequently in Peru. He came to me one day and he said, you, I, he said Brother Paul, I'm just being persecuted at my job. Now I knew enough about this man. I knew about his life. I knew about his work. And I, and I said, really? You're being persecuted? He said, yes. I said, what for? He said, for the sake of Christ. And I said, no. That's not the reason you're being persecuted. You're being persecuted because you're the laziest human being I have ever met in my life. That's why you're being persecuted. I will fire you. You see that? So many times I see Christians that are saying, well, they're persecuting me, they're this and that. Listen, Christian, because you're a Christian does not mean you have a free ticket. It does not mean that God's just going to carry you on wings to glory. But you are to go even farther than other men. You're to work harder than other men. You're to be more diligent to other men in order to prove that this gospel has some meat to it. That it truly can be a blessing. I want us to look for just a moment. I'm going to read to you a passage that proves what kind of damage to God's name the bad behavior of God's people can do. Paul says to the Jews in chapter 2 of Romans 17 through 24, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? 
You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one shall not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. You see that? We have the power to adorn the gospel bring glory to God even among unbelievers. And we have the power to, in a sense, tarnish and soil the reputation of God in the world. Now, a second goal of godly ambition is to provide for your own needs and those of others. In verse 12 it says, and not be in any need. Literally, have need of nothing. In Acts 17.4, from that text and from 1 and 2 Thessalonians, we have the idea that there were probably some wealthy people in the church in Thessalonica. Some wealthy people. And it is very, very possible that other believers were abusing their generosity. Now, I don't have time to read it, but if you go to 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15, you will see that. Now, this will be good for, especially for those of you going into the ministry. I have heard young men going into the ministry and will rail upon maybe a prosperous believer in the church. Well, that person doesn't want to help me. That person, you know, isn't giving anything to this ministry. I'm, here's a good thing that I set in my heart when I started out. And I want you to set in your heart, nobody owes you anything for your piety. The richest Christian in the world owes me and my ministry nothing. You should never look at it in those terms. And I've seen it often here in America, overseas, there'd be some wealthier Christians in the church and everyone else thinks that that Christian owes them. No, they don't. They don't. They don't owe you anything. We should never be that way. We should trust in God. We should labor to take care of our own needs. We should rely upon His providence in our life and not look to others. Even others who apparently have been greatly blessed by God. They will stand before God. They must be wise stewards, but that doesn't mean they owe you a dime. Look to God. Look to God. Let no man be your keeper. Look to God. Believe God. And then work diligently. I've, I've had people come to me when I've done financial counseling in the past, and after I look through all their stuff, I look at the man and the woman. And I go like this. Well, I've discerned your problem. What? You didn't go to med school. There's your problem. You didn't go to med school. And they said, what do you mean? You didn't get straight A's in college. You didn't go on and spend about another 10 years working 80 and 90 hours a week. You didn't do all the things a doctor does. But apparently, from looking at your finances, you think you're entitled to live like a doctor. 
has been different in all our lives. That's not fatalism. Another thing that you've got to realize, and, and young people, I'm telling you this because you grow up in a country that doesn't see this anymore. A lot of people are more prosperous maybe than you are because they worked 20 times harder than you. And instead of buying Nike tennis shoes, they bought some Walmart brand. My whole point is this. When it comes down to being Christian, it can be very practical. It's not just being super spiritual. It's not just floating around on angels' wings. It's realizing, work hard. I will tell you, men of my generation, it is very, very difficult for us to respect a man who does not work and does not work hard and does not go to bed tired. Very hard. But that's our culture today. Why? Because our culture is moving farther and farther away from God. And because it's moving farther and farther away from God, it's work ethic also farther and farther away. No, man. Let us work. Let us labor. And do it diligently and with joy. Hebert says this, For members of the church to be parasites and continue to live off other members of the brotherhood is morally degrading. Those who deliberately impose upon the generosity of others are not living in love. Now again, brothers, we will all pass through times when we will have needs. If you have needs, there's no shame in making those needs known. Yet at the same time, take it to heart. Work. Work. Well, I, don't, I, I can't find the job I want. I don't care. Then work at the one that you don't want. Mark Glass was here, or his brother Matt. When I preached that shocking youth message that everybody knows about, the famous preacher went to that big coliseum to preach, I had a hay crew. I worked on a hay crew to be able to feed my family. And that winter, I dug ditches in the snow. And I did carpentry jobs to keep the gas on in the house. So don't talk to me about you can't get what you want. I don't care. Work. Work hard. Be a man. Play the man. Do what you're supposed to do. Work. And carry that over into every other aspect of your life. Do it with diligence. I have known men that have come to me and come to our ministry with nothing. And become leaders because of their diligence. Because of their diligence. But we do this for the glory of God. We do this because we're ambitious to please God and to be a shining light in the world. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.